Hello, and welcome to the Conrad Life Report for, I guess this will publish January 8th, if I get it up tonight, or January 9th, episode number 11. Um, please insert your own mental introduction music here. I uh, I thought I would get around to properly putting in some music, and just don't, I didn't get around to it this time, I'll do it next time, but... I do kind of like starting from just, you know, the uh, flat-footed stop. It is kind of interesting. Um, You know, we just get right into it. No music, no introduction, just here we are. Uh, So here we are in 2019. Um, It's been almost a month since the last one. I meant to do one over the sort of holiday break, but I couldn't get myself into the mental zone. So I thought, well... If I can't get into the zone, A, this is a good enough time to not do it because people aren't really really expecting anyone to do anything they normally do on schedule. Um, And everyone's probably doing their own thing anyway, or not, but uh, we didn't go anywhere. We stayed in New York City. Uh, Julie's family came up, so that was... That was pretty fun because it's always fun to go out for like big um, dinners, essentially. On Christmas, we went to the Palm Restaurant in Tribeca, which we've done three times now in the past few years. And it's it's pretty fun to go out for a big fancy dinner on Christmas. Growing up, I never did anything like that. We always We were a very small family with absolutely no relatives anywhere nearby. It was always the four of us. So it was just always Christmas at home, Thanksgiving at home. Um, When we made a big deal about Easter, Easter at home. But now that uh, I'm an adult with different people in close to me, we have different things going on. I now have like more extended family. And so we do things like go to a big steakhouse on Christmas evening. And that's pretty fun, actually. Um, So... So we did that. So over the holidays, uh, it, it didn't do too much. Um, I did do one musical thing, which I'll get to later in the music segment of the show. But uh, I'm going to start off with books because I like to start off with books. So um, I went a couple of weeks without reading an actual book, which is unusual for me, uh, at least for the last couple of years version of, of me. But I couldn't decide what to buy. And at one point I had about five books I wanted to get and read. And then when I went to the bookstore, when I walked into Books Are Magic here in the neighborhood, I was sort of paralyzed with that. I don't want to spend, I don't want to, I don't know which I want to buy. And I get this feeling sometimes where if I don't, if I don't feel 100% like I really want to buy something, then there's something in my subconscious that tells me, that fills me with guilt and says I shouldn't get it, shouldn't get anything. And I had that feeling. I was paralyzed by that feeling. So I didn't buy anything, even though I had a, there were four or five books I thought I might want to read. So I didn't get anything. And about five days ago, I was looking at my shelf, and most of the books I have on my shelf I've read, but some I haven't. And they're by favorite authors that I know I will eventually read. And so I pulled down a book by Philip Larkin, who is the um, famous English poet, um, also a novelist. He wrote two novels, but he's known for his poetry. 
Um, he was part of the, they called it the movement, uh, which was sort of the last bastion of conservative with a small C English writers before the angry young men came along in the fifties and sixties. Um, not that these people didn't write well into the eighties and nineties, but the movement I mean, but Philip Larkin, um, was born in 1923, I guess, something like that. Uh, he died in the eighties. Uh, and, uh, he was in Oxford during the Second World War, and he went to Oxford with Kingsley Amos, who is in my top two or three favorite writers. Um, and uh, other people in their group include Robert Conquest, who writes very funny limericks. Oh, I should have looked up the limericks he's written. Maybe for next week I'll, I'll dig up these limericks. These are A-plus limericks, the best limericks you've ever heard, Robert Conquest. Um and I first came upon Robert Conquest's limericks in Kingsley Amos's memoirs, which I read like 10 years ago. Anyway, so Philip Larkin, I pulled down this book. I've read his poetry. I've read, I think, just about every poem he's written, which is not a lot over his life. Um, everything he wrote was very well received, but he didn't actually um, create that large of a body of work. Um, but... And he only wrote two two novels, and only one of which is really revered and remembered, and that's called Jill, which is a beautiful book that he wrote when he was 21 years old. Um, anyway, so I'm reading this book called Required Writing, which has, it's, it's published by the University of Michigan Press, and it has a very academic look to it, which is a shame because if you were to throw some like really hip, brand new like Penguin or FSG design on it, I'm sure it would, and you put it on display at, like, say, Books Are Magic, I'm sure it would sell very well. So I found this book, which is, I think, out of print, kind of. It cost cost me $23 at, I don't know where I got it. Oh, a Biography Bookshop, I think on Bleecker Street. Probably not even there anymore. Because um, I think it became something else or it moved down Bleecker at some point. Um, so I bought this, like, 10 years ago. And I never read it because I thought it was more boring than it would be because of, <laughs> I'm telling you, this awful cover. But um, anyway, what it is is a collection of essays and interviews, which, of course, is fantastic. I love reading essays by writers. I love reading essays by writers who don't normally write essays, like um, Martin Amis is an example of that, um, who had his most recent essay collection come out last year and is coming out on paperback on January 22nd, which I cannot wait for. And I actually put in my Google calendar to remind myself to that day, go to the bookstore and buy it. Anyway, so this Philip Larkin book, I read the back of it first because um, it's all about his jazz writings. He loves, he loved jazz. Um, and he had very strong opinions on jazz. He liked essentially uh, like between the wars jazz, like 1925 to 1945 jazz, which is um, kind of the classic era of, of um, like that middle classic era period of jazz, which is dominated by Louis Armstrong. Um, and Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong and like Duke Ellington are, are the sort of the giants of this period. And Larkin holds them up to be, you know, representative of the period. He loathes all jazz that comes after. And he really, <laughs> he goes deeply into it. Like he despises, and I mean despises, he's furious with Charlie Parker. Um, Miles Davis, he loathes, though not as, 
he's not Miles Davis doesn't fill him with rage like Charlie Parker does. Um, I think he respected Davis more, maybe. But anyway, um, he doesn't like Charlie Parker or any of these people, any of any of the modernists, because um, he thought that they sort of attacked and moved away from melody. It's basically just melody. He misses melody, um, and so he thinks that that Coltrane and Parker and Miles Davis and the rest of them left melody behind and thus killed Philip Larkin, killed, killed jazz. Although he does, he does admit that jazz probably could not have gone on forever being purely in in, in its between the wars form. Anyway, it's really interesting to read these collected together because, um, obviously they were published for different publications, um, different magazines across almost decades. So, of course, like these, all, when you read all these opinions at the same time, he's like, it's one essay after another here of just like, oh, hey, Charlie Parker, oh, this is bad, blah, blah, blah. Um, but of course, you know, they weren't, when they were published, they weren't, you, you had no idea he had written this before because he might have last written about it eight years ago in some journal you'd never heard of. To read, so to read the, all of these together um, is kind of jarring. Um, and this this sort of anti-modernist vibe uh, applies, like, he feels the same way about art and about books, about novels and poetry. Um, and he he's careful to not paint himself into a corner in terms of, like, just saying that he's sort of a fuddy-duddy that doesn't like what the whippersnappers are doing. Um, he... He claims that it has nothing to do with age, his opinions, but um, more that, like, for example, he says that, like, Picasso was in many ways like his contemporary. He loathes Picasso. Um, he didn't like Picasso. He didn't like, um, basically, any modernist that veers from a traditional structure, a traditionally accepted structure. And... In a, and I, I, I somewhat sympathize with Philip Larkin in the sense that um, I think sometimes you have to work within a template and push at the uh, push at the boundaries of a template in order to really make a bold statement. And if you completely free yourself of any limitations, then there's nothing really to compare it to. And then. Um, and and even though like the beauty may come through um, a sort of uh, shock of skill may be lost, um, like hmm, I don't know, I don't I don't know how best best to describe it, but like for example, like uh, I love. Jackson Pollock, but Jackson Pollock is, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's its own thing. And it's come to be accepted in a way where I think people know how to conceptualize it and conceptualize a framework with, within which to study and be moved by Jackson Pollock. But if you compare it to say a Vermeer, like, um, I do think a Vermeer is more impressive because of, of what it does within 
um, a sort of like ex- accepted and expected boundary. Anyway, all of this is to say that I see Philip Larkin's point. Ultimately, I don't agree with it for the most part because um, I don't think Charlie Parker and Miles Davis were purposely trying to uh, stamp down Philip Larkin's love of jazz. I think they were just um, actually stretching the framework. I think Larkin thinks they stepped outside of the framework um, to make it something unrecognizable, but I think they stretched it, um, which I think is the commonly accepted consensus opinion of, of those artists. Um, but anyway, I read the jazz section, all of his jazz writings at the back, and then I moved to the front, um, where he first talks about his early writings. He talks about some of his early positions and then he goes into, it's his collected criticism, which generally he was always asked to write. He never volunteered to write criticism, but often he was, he was brought in to oversee a journal or oversee a conference and then he would write a speech or write an introductory note and that's what's being printed in these things so um he has to he has to continually say throughout this especially in interviews that he's actually more easygoing and and has a greater sense of humor than what shines through because most of the time he's he's complaining about poetry about modern poetry oh so here's the other thing i want to discuss about larkin which i thought was interesting um and again, it sort of reflects on his conservative, again, with a small C, although he was an admitted capital C conservative um, politically, but his sort of cons- conservative artistic sensibilities. So he's a poet, of course, as I was saying, as you probably know. And um, But he never um, thought to make his career uh, writing poetry. So I think I've discussed this a few episodes back um, for any of you who are actually regular listeners, and uh, the argument between do you dedicate your life to your art or do you, and, and try to depend on it to also support you, or do you keep your art separate so that it's um, untethered to any of life's uh, requirements? Um, you know, and, and for me, like I actually had a go at trying to make a life of it. And I think I could have done it had I had the knowledge I have now looking back. Um, I was like, oh, I could have done this and this practically to have continued it. But I didn't do it because often in life you don't know what you're doing while you're doing it. And um, But I'm fine with that because I've, I've been able to do fulfilling, personally fulfilling stuff since I've gone back, since I've gone back to um, a life where I don't, depend on my art for anything except pure just joy and fulfillment um and so larkin does the same thing he became a librarian um during uh essentially like the war or at the end of the war he wasn't allowed in because of his bad eyesight into the army so he, he answered an ad and became a librarian and some of his early his um like some of the writings in this book talk about his first few jobs and he realized that he liked the discipline of having work, um, like actually completing work and then going out in the evening. So he would finish his day. He would go home. He would eat. He would do the dishes. Um, he would then have drinks at home. And what would he do? He would write for two hours and then have drinks and watch TV and and then go to bed. Or he would 
go home, write for two hours, and then go out with his friends to the pub till like 11, and then go to someone's house and play cards till like one or two. Um, but either way, he always had two hours to write. Um, and so he also claims to have that two hours is all you can do when you write poetry, because otherwise, after that, you run out of gas um, emotionally and, and mentally. And for somebody who's so sort of straight arrow, Englishman, conservative, fuddy-duddy, he He's very open about having to draw on emotion. Like emotion is what strikes, is the is the inspiration that strikes, which is um, pretty inspiring to read about. But anyway, I also like I was very, um, I I sort of recognized what he was talking about in terms of like there's a finite amount of time if you're really working at something. There's a finite amount of time in a day before you just can't do it anymore. Um, like. As a drummer, I could rehearse all day if I'm not leading something, if I'm just kind of working at perfecting something with either by myself or with an ensemble. But if I'm creating something, like there's a limit. And when I was in a band and we would write um, together in a room and create something in a room, like that was tough. It was draining. And those were the practices where we'd call it early, um, unless we were truly onto something. But because it takes a lot out of you when you're just sort of like doing other parts of your craft, which is just simply getting better at it via rote repetition or via just, you know, familiarizing yourself with something that's a lot easier. Um, but when you're truly creating something, um, I would say that it's, it's, it's tough to, a couple of hours sounds, sounds right. Um, so he, mentions that also you know he he had a chance to meet t.s Eliot once in russell square london by chance and Eliot was saying you know like you know you have to work because how else are you going to live your life and have experiences from which to draw on and and actually write poetry that you're inspired to write which is a pretty good point um Anyway, there was one thing I wanted to read quickly because, uh, like I said, I love Kingsley Amos, and I'll talk about Kingsley Amos on another podcast. But in his introduction, in Philip Larkin's introduction to his novel Jill, he talks about the first time he met Kingsley Amos when they were both students at Oxford. And this is just an example of, this is very Amos-like, but Larkin's writing here, but he talks, he describes the first time he met Kingsley Amos. And, um, a friend of Philip Larkin says, oh, come on, let's go meet this guy I know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so as they approach, they're walking across the quad, and they Larkin and his friend see Kingsley Amos. Um, <laughs> they see him in the distance, and he's coming through uh, sort of an archway. And Philip Larkin's friend puts up his hand in a gun motion, like a fake gun hand motion, and fake fires a fake, you know, pretends to fire a gun at Kingsley Amos, um, who Larkin only called, describes as, quote, the young man here. And so here's, I'm going to read now. So basically his friend fires an imaginary gun at Kingsley Amos. And here's Larkin's description. The young man's reaction was immediate. Clutching his chest in a rictus of agony, he threw one arm up against the archway and began slowly crumpling downwards, fingers scoring the stonework. 
Just as he was about to collapse on the piled-up laundry, however, and then he goes on to say how laundry was all over the place in wartime Oxford. Just as he was about to collapse on the piled-up laundry, however, he righted himself and up and trotted over to us. Um, I've been working on this, he said, as soon as introductions were completed. Listen, this is when you're firing in a ravine. We listened. And so it's implied that King's Lamus makes some sounds. And this is when you're firing in a ravine and the bullet ricochets off a rock. We listened again. Um, and then he says that his friend's laughter was like, you know, loud in the air. And <laughs> Larkin says, I stood silent. For the first time, I felt myself in the presence of a talent greater than my own. Anyway, I love King's Lamus. I love Philip Larkin's description of King's Lamus. Um, whoa, I've just spent a lot of time talking about Philip Larkin. Anyway, uh, one more quick thing about books. I don't know if I should save this all next week. I'll just say it quickly. So I've noticed a couple of other friends of mine, like my friend Howard, started reading The Three-Body Problem, which I'm still thinking about. So I watched a bit of Interstellar on TV over the break. I love Interstellar. I don't know why some people don't like it. I think it's the most beautiful film. Um, anyway... If you've seen Interstellar, you know that there is a tesseract scene near the end, and a tesseract is a kind of shape that exists most more in four dimensions than three, and a crucial plot point part of the film occurs in a tesseract, which exists outside of dimensionality, three-dimensionality. Anyway, um, Interstellar was written after the three-body problem was written, although it came out before Three-Body Problem was um, translated into English. That said, I feel like the end of Interstellar took a lot of inspiration from certain parts of Death's End, the third part of Three-Body Problem. Um, not any huge, um, like, I'm not s spoiling anything there, but there are just like, I feel like there's some really creative elements of the three-body problem, uniquely creative elements that all of a sudden I, I saw in Interstellar when I was when I caught the end of Interstellar on TV over the break, and I was like, wait a minute, this is very just like that one part of, you know, three-body problem, three, death's end. Anyway, I wonder if anyone else thinks about that. Um, I guess I should Google it or go on some sort of subreddit. Um, okay, moving on to music. Uh couple of quick things today i heard of some i listened to two new songs by bands i kind of like one is guided by voices who i was once obsessed with and i still like a lot but i just can't keep up with them any, anymore so they have a they released a second new song from one of their forthcoming 2019 albums this one being their double album zeppelin over china due i think february 19th anyway the song is called rally boys in typical gbv fashion it is one minute and 44 seconds long and it is absolutely fantastic um i would say it is the one of the two best of the new reunion reunited gbv albums of the last six years or whatever the other great song being vote for me dummy but who the rally boys uh you should one should if you think you like gbv at all you would probably love, love this song. It sounds like it could be on Earthquake Glue, their 2003 record, Earthquake Glue, the one that had um, My Kind of Soldier, The Best of Jill Hives. It has that vibe to it. 
Um, and also has a very nice synth that I think is very like cars, like, like, you know, Rick Ocasek in the cars, um, like just synth pads in the background. It's awesome. Uh, another new song I listened to was Garcia Peoples, their new song. Um, you know, they're from New Jersey, they're WFMU favorites. They're kind of like very popular in the underground New York city psych freak deadhead, you know, head, uh, world. Um, they have one album out, Cosmic Cash, came out last year. They have another album out coming out in April. They released the first song from that new album this week, and it is great. I can't believe, I can't remember what it's called, Free for Ride or something. I didn't write it down. Anyway, it's great, the new Garcia Peoples. Uh, so the big music thing I was, I was um, alluding to earlier is that over the break, I saw Fish play one of their four um, Ma- uh, New Year's Eve shows at Madison Square Garden New Year's Eve run. So like the dead used to do in, in Oakland and San Francisco, fish like now fish have been for years playing like four night runs, um, at the garden for New Year's Eve leading up to New Year's Eve. Um, so even though I had seen fish in sort of non-traditional concert ways over the past 10 years, three times, I had not seen an actual fish concert since October, 1994. Um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the Hill Auditorium when I was in college. So I saw three fish shows in college. I saw two at the Michigan Theater on Liberty Street in Ann Arbor, and I saw one at Hill Auditorium, which is on, I guess, where was Hill? Was that on Huron or North U? Huron, I think, or North U. Um, Anyway, and that Hill Auditorium show I saw in 94 is is kind of known in fish circles because one song from that show, Bouncing Around the Room, actually turned up on a live one, which was the first live fish release they ever put out back in the nineties. <clears throat> anyway, I did see fish part of their sets at Bonnaroo. Cause I was working for fuse at Bonnaroo for a couple of years back then. And I saw a bit of fish and I was in the photo pit for the first song, uh, for one of their Bonnaroo shows, uh, standing next to my friend Amrit from stereo gum, who now is a TV host at the LA's version of New York, New York one. But Amrit, was much more knowledgeable about fish than I was. Um, and I was like, Oh, it was a good song. You know, when we were leaving the pit, he was just like, do you know what that song was called? And I said, I do not. And he said, it's ACDC bag. I was like, Oh, well, that's a good song. Um, and that was a song that existed back when I was seeing fish, but I don't even remember it. I was like mild, casually knowledgeable about fish. Like I kept up with them casually. I had a number of tapes. I'd say I probably had 10 fish tapes and that's compared to like, 150 dead shows tapes. So, you know, fish was just like a very mild thing for me. So I didn't know every song, but, um, yeah. So my friend Bradley, who, with whom is, I host grateful dead night at three's brewing every month with it's me and Bradley and Scott Devendorf. So Bradley texts me on Christmas. Actually, when I'm, when I was at eating and, and eating dinner at the Palm steakhouse on Christmas and he just said, Hey, I've, I have two fish tickets for Saturday. Do you want to come? And I said, heck yeah, I do. Um, so I went to my first fish show in 24 years and Bradley saw about 30 or 40 fish shows back in the nineties and he hadn't seen a single fish show since 1995. So we were both in the very same position of having known fish back then, having, being very, very much so being deadheads, not fish people and deciding on a whim to go back. And, man, we were both floored. Like we just had a ball, just loved it. Um, 
you know, we made friends with the people around us who thought it was a real hoot that they got a kick out of the fact that we were like old had had been to some of those old classic fish shows and they were impressed, which is cool as, as they should be. Because like if, if when I was seeing the dead in the nineties as a, as a young guy and, if I met someone that had seen the dead in like 71 or 69, I was just like, wow, that is awesome. And so it was kind of cool to be back in that world. And everyone was so friendly as, you know, I was, as I would expect. And, and, you know, it's, it was just like the jam band world, so to speak. I hate that word, but just to like use that, you know, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, like the world is so much more like, um, it's just like, you know, with everything going on in this larger world, it's awful, which it is. It's just like when you retreat into this sort of, when you're amongst your people, the vibe is so good. I mean, the vibe is so good. And I just think that like, if if you're at all into like challenging music in any way, mildly challenging, you know, I just think one would enjoy going to a fish concert just to, you know, just to experience it. Um, and they're really in good form these days. They're just like, they sound good. They play well. Um, it was great. Uh, I had memories of when I of when I was playing with the National once in 2011, and Trey Anastasio from Fish came to play a few songs with us and got to talk with him during the show, actually, because we came. I was coming off, going on and off the stage during, depending on the song, and he came on for a few songs and came back off and just talking to talking to Trey side stage at the beacon while the national were feet away fl- playing. It was pretty surreal. He was a really great guy. Really enjoyed hanging out with him and performing with him and then see fish again. Oh, I feel like I'm back. Like I'm paying attention to fish. I downloaded the live fish app on my phone. So I guess that means I'm in. Um, and I even on new year's Eve, we stayed home, but I even paid for the 35 bucks for the webcast their show from the garden just to have it on in the background um so it's just kind of exciting it's like a nice little bolt of inspiration um anyway what else did i do oh, last weekend oliver and i went to gulliver's gate which is on 44th street between 7th and 8th um it's this miniature world um that opened in May of 2017, uh, I think by two Israeli guys. I was reading an old Curbed article. Um, two Israeli guys that funded it via Kickstarter and some other investors, and they just wanted to make a miniature world, and they did it, and it is freaking great. It is so awesome and so much fun. Um, you know, it's what it sounds like. It's just like you walk around, and it's, um, if you've been to like a holiday train show, it's like that in the sense that these things are sort of at your like waist or chest level and you look down into it and for kids it's at their high level. But um New York City is a big part of the exhibit, like miniature New York City, but also um they have all parts of the world except Africa actually. Well, they have e- Egypt in the in the pyramids. Um but you know, they have the Middle East, they have Europe, uh Asia, the Asia section is spectacular, mainly because of all of the interesting skyscrapers in Asia right now, um, and South America, and uh, is there anything else? I was trying to think. Oh, and then they have a huge airport, a fictional airport that's mildly inspired by um, Te 
at Stevens Airport, Anchorage. Uh, so they call it a fictional airport based in, in Alaska. And it has that vibe. And there's sort of like pine trees or whatever those trees are. Um, but it's a huge airport. And like where these planes actually take off via these plastic rods. And it's just super cool. Gulliver's Gate, it's I can't I can't recommend it enough. Um, if you have a kid, great to take your kids. Um, if you don't, I would recommend it too. Although, um, you know, you probably won't stay as long because you can kind of go through it pretty fast. Like it's an hour tops. But if you have, like Oliver didn't want to leave, we spent over two hours, which is a long time to spend at Gulliver's Gate. But um, if you do go, I will say that it is pretty expensive. So what you can do is you can Google these like discounts or these tourist coupons. Cause since it's like in times square, it's one of those things where like all these like New York city chamber of commerce, tourist board things have all these discounts. So you can actually purchase cheap tickets. And also I would go early because then you have the place to yourself and it's, it's great. Um, guess that's pretty much it. I guess it's 30, 32 minutes. I'll wrap up with some, um, should I quickly tell you some of the great beers I've had in the past couple of weeks? Let's see. Yesterday I had a Suarez family. It was Suarez family, one of my favorite breweries. It's in the Hudson Valley. I had a Ms. Frank, which is a Keller beer. I had that at Bar Great Harry, where I have most of my beers because they have a great beer selection and they're down the street. Um, let's see. Oh, Triple Nelson Daydream, which is a double IPA, double Imperial IPA from Other Half. Uh, my friend and colleague, Yoav, brought it to our friend Eric Michelson's house. He brought a growler, so we enjoyed that. Um, the other main one I wanted to discuss was uh, my friend Steve. My friend Steve, who used to live in New York, who's from Cincinnati, who went to the University of Michigan, although I didn't know him there, and I didn't know him in Cincinnati either, um, but we've become good friends. And he um, <clears throat> he brought for me from Chicago, uh, from Cincinnati via Chicago, uh, Listerman, this, which is a small Cincinnati brewery, uh, this like 11% porter, and it's called Marshmallow Nutcase something, and it's basically peanuts and marshmallow and it's very sweet and it's very strong because it's 11 percent. so my brother-in-law shared it we opened the bottle on new year's eve literally just a little 12 ounce bottle of beer but we split it and it's just like it was almost like belgian in the sense it's just like very sweet ambrosia like just nice to you know sip these really strong but sweet beers anyway listerman and then um the Suarez I had. Oh, and I also had um, this week's single cut from Astoria. I had their mellifluous life. I think it's called. Um, it's a beer that they, it's an IPA they made for the fish shows at the garden. Um, and I guess they still have some because it's a keg of it made it to bar great Harry. Um, and in the description is like, it, you know, it says like dank IPA um, made to celebrate the fish bonanza at MSG. Anyway, um, I would say that it was indeed dank. And so was the fish show actually. That was also dank. Anyway, so we are now just past the 35 minute mark. So oh, I guess the word for this episode is dank. I hope this has been um, a dank episode. Um, it certainly was dank for me, and I hope that 2019 is a dank year for all of us. Um, that's it for the Conrad Life Report, uh, episode 11 for January. This is the 8th, 2019. I'll see you back here next week. Have a dank week. <laughs>